Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who was the screaming girl? How about the jumper? And having spent 10 years in seminaries with a number of creepy clergy, I can't wait to find out about the spooky vicar on the train. Hello and welcome to the 645th broadcast of 654. 654th. Sorry about that. Broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and today we welcome a new guest with quite a story. Many stories, in fact. And as always, we welcome questions. The numbers are 800 449 1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401 766 1240 locally. Or you can email us, Paul, at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Uh, just one, uh, one note on phone calls on this broadcast. We have a special overseas connection today, so if you call, state your question to uh, our wonderful producer, Josh, and when he answers, and uh, we will convey the question to the guest as if we were coming in by email, okay? So, who is the guest, that is? Mark Anthony Wyatt. Mark is the author of Wyatt's Weird World, a creepy comp- compendium of paranormal encounters. He grew up in the 1960s in the beautiful Tillingburn Valley in the county of Surrey, southwest of London. He was a normal, sports-loving lad until one day when his father told him of his eerie encounter with a ghostly gunpowder worker. Mark was hooked and has since led a life steeped in the paranormal. Today, he lives on the other side of the country, that's England, that is, in in Bood, which is uh, in the magnificent county of Cornwall. Uh, For fans of the popular ITV and PBS series Doc Martin... Uh, Mark lives about 30 miles up the coast from Port Isaac, where Doc Martin was filmed. Mark's website is markanthonywyatt.com. So, Mark Anthony Wyatt, welcome back, to, or well, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Paul. Okay, very good. Will we turn up our audio a little bit there? Okay, good. Okay, very good. So, uh, Ben, take it away. Alrighty, so let's start off with something a little bit basic here. So tell us that first story you heard from your dad, and why did it affect you so much? Yes, um, it was around about 1960-61, and I, I was a baby, and uh, I heard about the story in later years, obviously. Uh, my dad told me this story probably when I was about eight or nine, something like that. It, in fact, it was more likely to have come from my mother, uh, because dad never liked to talk about it. Uh, what, what happened, he was a steam engine driver, a fireman driver, on the Southern Railways, and we lived out in the Tillingbourne Valley, a beautiful sort of rural area, and he had to cycle to and from his place of work to get on the engines, uh, which was, I think, off the top of my head, I think it was about four to five miles, mostly cross-country. He'd been, you know, all hours of the night, all hours of the day, they were different shifts, and he was doing this for probably four or five years with no problems whatsoever, never, never saw anything unusual until this one particular night when he sort of chanced upon this strange glowing sort of, well, he, he described it as a glittery man in later years um, who appeared to be on a bicycle. Um, it all happened quite quickly in that he gained speed. On, he was only on a push bike, you know, a cycle, but he gained speed on this light and as he got closer and closer, it wasn't until he was actually passing it that he realised that it was anything really unusual. Um, by which, as, as he passed him, he actually told, told this, what he thought was an old man on a bicycle, he told him that he didn't have any lights on. Am, am I coming through okay? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, he, he thought he'd, he'd noticed that he didn't have a little rear light on his bicycle, which at the time you know, most people would have done. And he proceeded to tell this guy, he said something like, oh, you've got no lights on, mate. And uh, this, this chap turned round to him, sort of to face him, only to say he to face him is a bit a bit strange really because he didn't have a face he said it was just like a, a black void like a foggy void um which obviously upset him no end um he hurried by and as he looked over his shoulder to see where this thing was it had completely disappeared so it was there and then gone just so quickly and there was nowhere that it could have turned there were no you know they hadn't actually a, they were arriving in a little village where we lived, which was called Chilworth. And I should explain more about that place quickly. Um, we actually lived on the site of the Gunpowder Works, which had been there from 1625, I think it was, to 1925, approximately. And these were the remains of the Gunpowder Works. Obviously, it had gone out of business prior to the First World War. And we lived in a building which was a converted magazine built, what we called magazines, where they made the gunpowder. Um, he was almost home. He was, you know, probably five minutes cycle ride from his home. And he was also very near to a pub called the Percy Arms Pub, which had been there for a, a few hundred years. And the Percy Arms Pub, although he didn't know any of this then, and I, I certainly didn't, being a babe in arms, um, but I've done a hell of a lot of research since to find out that in that pub, they used to, um, when there were explosions in the works, which there often were, people would be literally blown to pieces. And they used to collect the parts up and put them in this pub as a sort of makeshift mortuary until they could get them to be buried. Good heaven. So, you know, all, all, there's like a, I often refer to it as like a sort of little triangle because you've got the gunpowder works... You've got the pub where they store the bodies. And then just across the road, you've got a level crossing on a railway line. It's the um, Reading, which is just outside London, which takes you down towards Gatwick Airport. Um, it's that, that line. That line follows the river for, not all of the way, but some of the way down for Tillingbourne. And between these three points, you know, there's a hell of a lot of activity goes on. Although it's not, not really documented. Um, I only know this from talking to other people who've had experiences there. It's, there's been nothing been written about it other than what I've done. Um, but I think there's some connection between the big explosions, which somehow, I mean, I can't, I'm not a, I'm not a chemist or a physicist or anything like that, but I, I imagine that when they have these big explosions, it somehow rips through some sort of fabric of time, that something that is around us, which we haven't yet discovered quite, you know, the nothingness, if you like. Hmm. I, I sort of picture something being ripped when you have these chemical reactions causing explosions, and it damages the sort of fabric of life around that area somehow. You know, don't ask me how. Interesting. <laughs> um, that's just a, a sort of theory I'm sort of thinking about. Um, and also, you've got the railway line, which is quite close, and you've obviously got high voltage. So I'm wondering if there's some interplay there going on as well. Because many of the things that I've experienced in my life have been either near rivers or near railway lines. That's not all of them, but a lot of them have been. So, um, 
well, that was basically the story. But as, as years went by, my father only told the story probably two or three times that I remember in all those years. I mean, we're looking at 50 plus years. And if we tried to, particularly me, I would say, come on, Dad, tell me the story again. He would always sort of fob me off and say, I'll ask your mum, she'll tell you. Because he didn't like to remember it, because it, it really freaked him out. Mm. And he, he wasn't he wasn't big on this stuff anyway. I mean, he didn't enjoy reading ghost stories or f- or look into it at all. You know, uh, he had just just two experiences that I know of. That one and the other one was a deja vu. So you know, he wasn't exactly prone to this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just so, wanted to. Yeah. Con- I don't know how familiar you are with our work, Mark, uh, outside of the show here. But um, your and I'm sure Ben will agree with me. Your um, comment on the the rips in time uh sort of Mm. intrigued me uh the we are always saying and i started on this page sort of in the 1970s was the the how physical many of these allegedly spiritual events are all right um things that are supposed to be spirits or discarnate or you know have an awful lot of physical characteristics so, right. um, the, and, and we, we believe that this has a lot to do with, with the physics of parallel realities and this sort of thing, which is, which is not only taken yes, seriously, yeah. it's believed and used in a practical way in some ways by, by some physicists. So, uh, I yes, think you yeah. may, may have something there. Um, but I, I, I don't know about you, Ben, but I hadn't, um, thought too much about, uh, despite my military background, I hadn't thought too much about the, uh, Explosions in, in reference to um, actually neither have I, but I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it, it excites the particles, extreme heat. Yeah, and and certainly. That. Well, yes. thank you, yeah, Mark. Yeah, You've yeah. given us something else to think about. So I think that yeah, the, I mean, yeah, everything affects everything else. You know. So tell us That's about. Right. I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Please continue. No, go ahead. No, I'll wait for you. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I was just going to move on to another question. If you had, if you had another point, go for it. No, all I, all I was going to say was I haven't got the, when it comes to sciences, I haven't got the education, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm more of an English and history kind of guy in arts and music. Um, so I, I know I know how I, <laughs> like ripping through the fabric of time, the, you know, and, you, and Ben, you mentioned, you know, the heating up of the particles and so on. So I haven't got the technical know-how on the science at all, but... Well, on, on the other hand, um, Mark, in, in I fairness... Think, I think it to, disrupts yeah. um, the, the fabric of its time. That's the only way I can put it, really. And I think that's why these memories are played back. Well, I think one of the things that uh, we have to be aware of is You're that, cutting in and out a lot. I'm struggling to understand. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, all right. Well, well, I'll speak more slowly. One of the things... Uh, is that better? I don't know. Okay. One of the um, one of the things that we should be aware of. Yeah, it's 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 it's. it's <laughs> okay, this is yeah. This, even even in the 21st century, overseas connections can be problematic. Um, yeah. Okay, but perhaps during the break we'll try and make another connection here. Okay. All right. So if we can hang on yes. for another 15 minutes, but I think we'll do. W- one of the issues is that um, when we um, have any sort of of explosion or rip like that. Uh, it yes. might very well affect the physical environment, and I think that despite one's education, we um, I think innately know these things because I think our remote ancestors were aware 
of yes. our environment. And uh, the, these things that we refer to today as paranormal are simply part mm-hmm. of the world we live in, the multiverse or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I think yes. we, uh, we're aware of it whether we've uh, learned it in a classroom or not. Yes, yeah. Okay, so Ben. Yeah, sort of instinct, instinctively, I agree with that totally. Yeah. All right, so I guess we can, um, I don't know, you, you have so many interesting stories, and I kind of wanted to ask about the screaming girls as well. well what's up with that? Okay, the, the Screaming Girl is an interesting one because it it's, um, sort of spans quite a few years, really. I, I was living in the southeast of England, um, sort of slightly south of London, sort of 20 miles south of London, in a Victorian terraced house, and had quite a few things going on in the house. I mean, but but then I've had that all my life, wherever I've been, really, so it's not really a surprise. Um, but this, on this particular um, early hours of the morning, I was woken up by a girl screaming. And I'm, when I say screaming, I'm talking about um, horrific screams, as if a girl is being hurt, attacked, dying, whatever. Um, and it was very loud and very insistent and just awful. I mean, it was just all around me. And I was laying alongside my wife when I woke up and heard this. Now, she was sound asleep. And I tried to wake her up to say, listen to the girls screaming, you know, and eventually managed to wake her up. And she couldn't hear any of this screaming going on at all. And I spent the next 20 minutes or whatever it was opening the curtains, looking outside of the street. It was a fairly quiet street, you know, and it was, as I say, early hours. It was a nice, nice evening. There was no, no rain, no wind, nothing like that. And... There were no lights coming on in other people's houses or curtains being twitched, you know, like people like myself looking out to see what the noise was. And that surprised me because I thought, well, there's so much, the screaming was so loud that they would have to hear it as well. But obviously not. Uh, This went on for some time and my wife still couldn't hear it. And as we were having a discussion, sort of sat up in bed, she said, I can't hear this, I, you know, you're, you're dreaming, it's, it's like a carryover, you've, you've woken up, but you're still in some sort of dream state, just lay, lay back down and go to sleep, you know. And as she's telling me this, trying to give me her reasoning on what's happening, the screen went off, it felt like it was in the same room. And I said, tell me you didn't hear that, and she said, hear what? You know, she, she literally didn't hear it. So... As the, as the time went on, it gradually faded. It sort of got more and more, more muffled, like distant. And I know that I should have gone out. And she did say to me, if you're that worried, get out and have a look, you know. But I, I think I figured out that there was something a bit peculiar going on um, because she couldn't hear it and that maybe I'd be wasting my time if I did. And somehow I convinced myself to go back to sleep, which I did, no problem. And in the morning... I went to ask a few neighbours if they'd heard this girl screaming. And um, obviously you've read the story, so you'll know one of the conversations I had with a guy, which is probably best left for a uh, a, a live talk, which I (laughs) told it recently. (laughs) It's not something I'd like to say on air. Um, But it's quite quite amusing. Um, And I I walked around the local area. There was uh, just at the end of the road, there was a cricket field. And I walked around the cricket field, I looked under the pavilion, I looked under the hedgerows. I was expecting to see a girl, a, a dead girl probably, you know. 
um, or sort of half expecting, I should say, really. Um, but there were no no police cars, no sirens. There was no missing girl. And um, as I say, the neighbours didn't hear anything either. So, hmm. and I, I gradually put it out of my mind, and you know, I, I got on with my life. Now that was, um, sort of the top of my head, I think that was late eighties, sometime. And in the early nineties, we moved up to Northumberland, which is up to it's like a beautiful national park to the left of uh, to the east, sorry, to the west yeah. <laughs> of Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And um, again, in a, in a nice valley. And uh, while I was up there, we used to, my mother-in-law used to send us newspaper cuttings from our old town, which is where it happened in Woking, uh, the Woking News and Mail. And it was really for the football scores more than anything else. But on one occasion, the paper turned up and the the headline on it was something about, uh, I'm trying to remember what it exactly said, but basically there'd been a, a double murder in the street where we used to live. And it was in the house next door to us which was approximately where I heard the big scream when my wife was sat up sort of speaking to me about this. Um, you know, it was very, very close to us. And I didn't actually mention, I actually knew this family reasonably well. Oh, my goodness. Um, the, the, there was a mother and a father, and a, the daughter was a art student, and at the time, I was a builder's merchant uh, representative selling building materials. And she used to come around and ask me for sort of materials that she could use for her course. And one of them that she borrowed off of me was a, uh, a, a it sounds daft, but it was a brick catalogue, which had all the different textures and colours of bricks, mm. and actual like faces of bricks. And they were all reds and browns and greens and all sorts of colours. And she used it on an art project. That's how I knew her, really. And um, the father was a joiner, you know, a carpenter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew him through my building work. And he, he would occasionally come around on a Sunday morning and <laughs> say, he, he had a very strange voice, he'd say, Can I come into your garden and spray your weeds? Because he, he didn't like my weeds escaping into his garden. <laughs> <laughs> he, he used to put a fl- little flamethrower onto them, you know. So... Um, but it, it, what, what happened was on the evening of the murder, which was, as I say, several years after I left the area, um, the, the, the young girl had got a boyfriend who was a, a bit of a nutter by all accounts, and there'd been a big falling out, and she'd given him the boot. Um, and he'd got upset, and he evidently carried a knife around, and he used the knife on his girlfriend. And the uh, uh, after he'd... attacked her he ran down the stairs they were like a three story house we were a two story next door he ran down the stairs the mother had run up the stairs to see what the commotion was just thinking that they just had a big row more more than anything Um, and she'd been attacked as well so that all happened like a couple of years later two to three years later now the only reason I put those two things together is that I wondered whether there was some link with time, whether somehow I'd sort of tuned into the future somehow. Uh, yes. You know, that was my thinking. I mean, I, I, obviously I can't prove that. Um, but I, I think time isn't linear. It isn't A to Z or whatever, you know, A to B. Um, I think it's pro- possibly all happening at the same time. <laughs> That's what we think. Uh, yeah, and maybe I just sort of zoned out of this time into their time, 
just briefly and I think maybe it happens when you're really relaxed in certain conditions or happens to some of us so well, certainly. That, that's where you're going you're, uh, you're very much on to something that uh, Einstein was thinking about as well uh, our, ex- our entire experience of the paranormal does not come from a classroom I mean, my degree is in philosophy and Ben is a sound engineer the uh, the entire idea is that uh, time is not linear. It, we only experience it that way because we aren't quite up to doing anything else yet. And uh, yes. I think that perhaps you're uh, absolutely correct. That uh, I mean, this is what we see. So you had a what would be called, I guess, a precognitive experience of yes. what yeah. to us would be the future. But uh, yes. in reality, you were just tuned in to the right moment in in yes. the simultaneous whatever parallel reality yeah, in which that was that's occurring. right yeah it seems to be like a sort of broadcast but um, seemingly yeah, yeah yeah there's a signal going out and, we're, and i think our brains are tuned into a certain frequency and occasionally we wander off of those frequencies for whatever reason whether, whether it's just we're super relaxed or whether we get mentally ill and we sort of go slightly off kilter and we ch- it's like these um oh you go into an uh, um an old people's home and you'll get, you know, or, or uh, I don't know if it a particularly politically correct term now, but if, you know, they, they tend to speak to people that we can't see, but, yes. they, but they'll swear blind that they can see these people. And my, my mother's in a dementia home, and, and, you know, there have been occasions when she's seen, you know, people wandering around the home and this sort of thing, um, who other people can't see. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's how it works. I think that um, our brains... Uh, can pick up on this stuff in, in sort of altered states. Yeah, I think it could so be drugs too. as well, yeah. you know. Well, working in, in psychiatric hospitals many years ago as a student uh, and a seminary student, I was um, struck by the r- sort of the, the, the reality that was conveyed by many of the people who were considered uh, as having dementia or uh, schizophrenia. There, yes. there was a, a great knowing look in their eyes very often. Sometimes they seem to live in terrible worlds, other times wonderful worlds. And, and I began yes. to yeah. to think perhaps uh, what we have just said is, is the case. Uh, I've talked to a number of psychiatrists and psychologists who have the same opinion but don't dare express it publicly. No, that's right. You know, because yeah. they'll, they'll lose their jobs. That's the thing. So... Mm. Um, let me, we're going to. Uh, I'm going to state the next question, if Ben will uh, permit me there, because uh, yes. uh, he was supposed to. Because I wanted to explain uh, what a vicar is. It's not a familiar term in America, anyway. Um, oh, okay. How, so a, a vicar in the Church of England is uh, generally a you might call a pastor, or uh, you know, certainly a, a member of the clergy. Uh, who was in charge of a of a particular parish or whatever? Um, yes, there are vicars and rectors and things of this kind. Uh, it would be familiar here to some of the Orthodox. Uh, the term might be familiar too, and in Canada, it's it's much more, more commonly used. So that being said, okay, we've got three minutes until our uh, break. But why don't you state the question, Ben? And um, yes, we'll. we'll get started on it anyway. Well, this is the first thing that I saw when I was looking through our notes for the show, which was the spooky vicar on the train. Can you can you give a little bit of an overview of that before we go to our break? 
Okay, yeah, it's, 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 it goes back to about 1979, 80, I think, around that time. Uh, it was early Saturday morning. It was daylight, and I was, I was commuting to work. I basically just walked down the road to the local railway station, which was unmanned, to, to take a short trip into town, which was Guildford, for, so my yeah, village of Shalford, yeah. into Guildford. Um, it was only like a, a five-minute-plus, I suppose, train journey, and I was waiting for the train. And that's, that's when it all happened. Have, have I got time to go into it now? <laughs> yes, okay, we, we have so, another uh, yeah, two yeah. minutes. So, so I'm, I got down there a bit early. I was about a quarter of an hour early. And I was on my own. I hadn't passed anybody. I had to, when I arrived at the, sta- at the station, which is, as I say, unmanned, I had to walk down a long slope and then cross over a footbridge onto the other platform. Now, when I arrived on the other platform, as I say, I was early. And I, I had a lot, a long, uh, I think it's about a mile and a bit straight railway towards the station where the train was ca- go, going to come from. So I was able to see down there. I was able to see the footbridge. I was able to see the slope I just walked down. And I was able to see behind me there was like a service road up into the village. Now, I had 360-degree vision of anybody approaching me. And there was nobody on that station, absolutely nobody. Nobody crossed the footbridge. Nobody came down the slope. What I was doing, I was walking up and down the platform edge, and it's just two, two lines, you know, one going one way, one going the other. And I'm just looking at all the debris on the railway track, you know, just bored. I was basically bored, waiting. And as I stood there, this... Um, oldish man, I'd say he was sort of 65-ish, stockily built, a little bit shorter than me, so he'd be about six foot probably, Um, greying, white, thinning thinning hair, Uh, he was dressed in black, sort of like a baggy, like a scruffy suit, but it was like a suit black. Okay, I'm afraid we'll we'll have to to leave it there for our break, but uh, hold that thought, as they say, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240. In New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, we'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Mark Anthony Wyatt, in just a moment. The Extra Point, afternoons on ON 1240 Radio, bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons, Monday through Friday on ON 1240 Okay, that was a short break, and we're back with our guest, Mark Anthony Wyatt, and we're talking about the spooky <clears throat> vicar on the train. So let's continue, Mark. Okay, um, I was just thinking, actually, while you re- reintroduced me there, um, I should really have called the story of a spooky vicar on the platform, although he, he did get <laughs> on the train. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, as he, I was just describing him, the, the, the one thing I didn't get to describe was he actually had a, 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 what I call a dog collar, the white collar that um, pastors wear. Clerical collar, yeah. And uh, he, he, as he approached me, he, I, I didn't notice him approaching me until he was probably, I'm just trying to think now, 15, 20 foot away, something like that. And he seemed to get in very close to me very quickly. And he was uncomfortably close. You know when you've got your personal space and you don't like people standing. We, we call it bearding here, uh-huh. um, where something gets too close to you, you know. And I had to sort of step back a little bit, really. 
and he started to speak to me he was very friendly he had like very in, uh, sort of intensity about his eyes like almost like he was reading me that's how it how it felt and he was asking me about my family now he knew all the names of my family and he knew what they did you know where they worked and all this sort of thing and he, he was he, he came across like a family friend you know he he knew everybody and he was just asking about their welfare and this went on for some time and all the time he's speaking to me i'm thinking well i don't know who you are how do you know this about me and my family and strangely i know it's daft but i never asked him i just i just didn't ask him i was too busy sort of listening to him hmm. so anyway but i noticed a light in the distance on the, on the train track which was the train approaching but like a long way off and i'm watching that as he's talking to me over over his shoulder and it got closer and closer and closer so eventually it pulls in he looks i can sort of still picture him now looking around i'm saying to him the train's nearly here you know he's looking around the they had the doors that open out in those days not the sort of slidey ones and i let him get on the train first it was only like you know three carriages long and i let him get on first and i followed him in and he sat now this is a difficult part to explain on air but as you got on there's like a little uh what do you call it alleyway i suppose when you got onto the train and you turned left to go into the carriage on the immediate left as as i walked in there was like uh four like two seats facing two seats with a little table in the middle and there was a young couple i mean i i was I was about 20 on at the time, I suppose, just less than 20. These, this couple were probably a little bit older than me in their 20s. They were sat to, yeah, to one side, both to one side of this table. And on the right, the old fella, the vicar, had sat down facing towards the town we were travelling to. I sat down opposite him and we, we we talked well i should say i talked to him because by this time he started to quieten down and he was as the train pulled out when i say train it was a diesel you know it wasn't really a steam train it was after those days mm -hmm. i'm i'm talking to him over this table and he was looking out the window and we as we went under this little bridge and there's what they call shelford meadows the other side of the bridge and it's, it's a view over towards the Shelford Church. And the thing I remember was that he was talking about, he said something along the lines of, oh, it's just how I remember it. And he seemed quite emotional when he was saying this. It was, it was as if he was remembering the place, as if he knew it well, but he hadn't been there for a long time. That's how it came over. And... I just watched, I just watched him, I was just fascinated by him and thinking, well, there's something not quite right about you. And all the time this is going on, this young couple are watching me talking to him. And they're smiling. Now, <laughs> I've thought about many times since, you know, was that guy I was talking to actually there? Oh my did God. I have, did I have some episode myself? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is I saw him, he was as, he was solid, you know. And he'd been on the platform. Um, but I had the feeling that they were watching me too and possibly were connected to him. I don't know. Even though he didn't get on the train with him, they were already on the train. I had the feeling there was a connection possibly there. So anyway, we arrived. It's a very quick journey. We arrived in the town. 
and we arrived on uh, platform five. I know that because I used it so many times. And I got up and I said goodbye. He was still sat there, and he was a big man. He wasn't um, like athletic or agile at all. He would have taken some time to get up. And I got off the train on the opposite door to the one I got on, on on that same alleyway. And as I got off, I looked through the window where I just left him, sat with this other couple, this uh, young couple. None of them were sat where I'd seen them, not one of them. Now, I told myself, well, okay, they they might be getting off as well. So they probably walked down to the other door, the next one down, and they're probably getting off there. So I, I actually went up and down the, the few people that did get off a train looking for these people, just to put my mind at ease, really. And I couldn't see them. I couldn't see them anywhere. Uh, the other thing I thought, of, maybe he went to the toilet on the train, in which case I wouldn't have seen him. But that seems highly unlikely because it's just not the done thing. You don't use the toilets when they're in the station for health reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I, I sort of went through all these ideas and of what it could have, where they could have gone to. And there were two ways out of the station. There was a subway that went under all the lines, probably about sort of six platforms or something like that. And there was also a footbridge. And I, I looked up the footbridge, couldn't see them go up there. And as I say, this was a big man, not, not young and fit. He would have taken some time to get up those steps and he wasn't going up the steps. And he wasn't down the subway. It's like a long, long slope. So that, that really puzzled me. And I mentioned this um, to my mother, I think it was at the time. And she, I sort of described the fella to her. Now, my mother had been brought up in the, in the local church. Well, we went to the local church occasionally. And I was a choir boy, so I, you know, years and years earlier. So I knew... It's, you know, it's a small village. I knew the vicar. In fact, his, his son is my best mate to this day. Mm. Um, so I knew who the vicars were. I knew who the lay preachers were. They're sort of people that come in occasionally to help them out or whatever. And, <coughs> excuse me, I'm <gonna> cough. <coughs> so basically, I, I, they, this guy just did not fit in with any of those people that we knew or my mum knew. And... I've even mentioned it to my to the vicar's son, who, as I say, is my mate, my mate Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentioned it to him a few years ago when we were flying to Finland. I told him what happened, and he didn't know this guy. Now, these any clergy that visited the village used to stay at his house, and he sure. knew them. Yeah. So you know, it's just one of those things that happened, and I would love to know the answer. I'd love to. I'd, I'd like it to be just some normal explanation. You know, I don't know but about I, Ben here, but you know, th- th- this reminds me of of the Men in Black sort of experience. Actually, yeah, uh, vaguely. Yeah. Well, what do you think of that, Mark? I mean, I'm certainly he was. I'm sure he was in black or gray. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, yeah. have, did did you by any chance uh, have a UFO experience before that? But then, if it was the well, Men in Black, they'd be talking about that. So. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit. Um, if you've heard me talk on this stuff, I'm always a little bit reluctant to say yes to that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Only. Well, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that I getting back to what we were talking about earlier about the fabric of time and all the rest of it. I think it's only our interpretation of it anyway. Yes. Uh, I, I I don't like putting labels, you know, hanging labels on things. And one hundred percent. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's all connected. The, the ghost thing, the UFO thing, I think it's all part of the same thing. And I think they choose to show themselves in a way that we would understand. And, and I, so really in that case, this comes back to a, a, I mentioned this whole story to a lady a few years ago. And she listened patiently. Then she said, well, she said perhaps that guy was some sort of guardian angel. And I said, well, why would a guardian angel be hanging around me, you know? And she said, well, the first thing you said when you started telling me what happened was you were pacing up and down the platform. So, <laughs> and she said, maybe somebody, somebody somewhere, somebody up there, wherever, thought that you were considering jumping onto the track when the train came in. So maybe somebody was sent to have a word of you and check your state of mind out. Um, <laughs> Now, that was her interpretation of it, and mm -hmm. I said, well, that certainly wasn't the case, because I was a you know, very happy young man at the time, and uh, certainly no thoughts of anything like that. But, but again, it comes back to if they, whoever they are, choose to show themselves, especially if they're benign, benevolent, they will show themselves as somebody that you love and trust, a, a figure that you would not sort of uh, be scared of. And, if, you know, looking at it from that perspective, a vicar would probably suit that, you know, that profile. <laughs> yeah, one would think so. One of the uh, things yeah. we always say is what you just said, and that the, the labels that we place mm. on these phenomena may have a great deal to do with the context in which we experience them. Yes. Yeah. You know, and if you see something in the sky, uh, it must be a UFO or an alien or whatever, or if it's in the house, mm -hmm. it's a ghost. And there may be yeah. um, none of the above. Yes, yeah. That's it. Okay, well, we have, uh, let, speaking of jumping off the platform, Ben. Oh, yes. So talk about the jumper. Yeah, I was just thinking just now, it's a per perfect segue, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that happened probably ooh, that, within a year possibly actually I was I was a um, part-time student and I was working again connected to the railway this one and I was every Friday we'd go up to this uh, college in a place called Kingston which is on the edge of London and we would go up by train uh, I'd usually go with two or three other lads and we were sort of studying accounts and law and this sort of stuff for our business and we would walk from Surbiton Station towards Kingston, which was, I think, about a mile plus sort of through the suburbs, you know. And I was walking back from the college on one occasion with two lads, and it was a very busy Friday afternoon, lots of lots of people about. And we were getting closer and closer to the station when I suddenly saw this very, very tall, skinny guy wearing a suit had a bowler hat on which was highly unusual even even at that time you know this was like late 70s it was you know you never saw a guy with bowler hats on with a bowler hat on and he he seemed to draw my attention to him in that he was looking directly at me from some distance off probably 20 to 30 feet away and between us there's lots and lots of people going both ways and we're at the side of a little green park area and like a parade of shops and he sort of drew drew, his, drew my attention to him I just couldn't help but look at this guy because he looked so unusual very pasty faced he had as well and 
he had a briefcase. He was walking towards me, but he he's like head and shoulders above everybody else. Now, I, I'm six foot one and a bit, so I, I think he was six four, six five, something like that. Although the hat may have made him look taller than he was, I don't know. Um, but he kept his eyes on me and me him all the way as he sort of weaved his way through and I could sort of catch glimpses of him coming through these people. And as he got really close and passed me, he it sort of felt very cold. It, there was like a sort of, I can't explain it, but it was like a sort of chill. He looked down at me and there was like a sickly grin on his face. And he, he sort of, like a well, grin, smile, whatever you want to call it. And he just carried on walking. And I was so sort of taken by his appearance, I suppose, the weirdness of it, that I turned around to get another look at him as he walked away. And he wasn't there. And I've sort of turned, uh, coined a phrase for it, because like, this has happened to me several times, probably at least four times I can remember. I call them walk-bys, because that's what they tend to do. It's like they get your attention, they show themselves to you, and then when you turn around to have another look at them... They're not there. It's um, happened to me, yeah. Has, has it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, one of the things we often uh, <clears throat> say is that what I've experienced in, in paranormal cases is that, that people consider to be ghosts is that very often the quote-unquote ghosts will see us as we see them and are yes. just as fra- afraid of us because, oh, right. in right. our opinion, they're carrying on their daily lives in a parallel reality. They're not dead at all. Death in such a yes. multiverse yeah. has no real meaning. And um, we just interpret it, as, as I say, put by putting the labels on that we understand according yes. to the context. Uh, now, th- that's a very common story, when, you know, turning around and someone is gone. Mm. But before we finish burning up this hour, Mark, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your website and your book and where people can get it. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, the website is called It's a Dark, Dark Night, and um, that has some most well all, all of my own writing, which is most of my experiences on there. But as I, as and when I remember them, I put them on there, and um, some of my other writing as well. I do other writing, sort of biographicals of my, my own, you know, autobiography. Um, most most quite humorous stuff, really. I, I do try and blend my paranormal with a little bit of humour. Yes. Um, I know it's a bit strange to some, but um, you know I, you I don't look upon this. Humor. Yeah, exactly, and I don't look upon it as um, particularly chilling. I mean, a lot of my stories aren't particularly frightening; they're just as they are, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the book's called Wyatt's. That's W Y A T T apostrophe S. Wyatt's Weird World. Wyatt, as in the, uh, the cowboy. And um, it's available on Amazon Kindle. I'm not sure what it is in America, but it'll, it'll be roughly one dollar fifty or something, something along those lines. I think um, there's, there's approximately twenty five, twenty six experiences in there, and a couple of essays at the end about skepticism and uh, the nature, the true nature of ghosts, this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite. Quite pleased with it for a first book, really. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, yeah. I have so, it. I have not had time to read it yet, but I will, and, and we'll be in touch off the air anyway. So, uh, but but thank you for that, and uh, we encourage people to uh, to check that out. Uh, ben, I think we have time for one more quick question. Just, yes. So, out of all of the stories, that we have one more on our, our list of notes here, and that would be the golden wedding plate. 
Oh, right. I don't know if we've got time for that one. <laughs> okay. Right, well, okay. It's an exercise yeah, I, in editing. That's right. It's going to have to be, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, very briefly, my, my, we lived in Northumberland, as I mentioned earlier. This was in the 90s. My wife used to like to go to these old, um, what, what would you call them, uh, second-hand shops, junk shops. Uh, flea market, uh, we Sorry? Or antique shop, we might call it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And she used to like to pick up little bits and pieces. And, and to be honest, we didn't have the same taste in many ways. She would bring things home and I'd say, oh, what the hell have you bought that for? You know, we don't need that. We don't, you know. And on one occasion, she brought home this um, this plate, which was wrapped in brown paper. And she brought it out of her bag and showed me. And she was quite pleased with it. But it had, it was all, it was quite, to my eyes, it was quite tacky. It was had gold braid on it. And it had, it had an inscription on it which said to, I can't remember the actual names now, it's so long ago, but we, I called them George and Mabel, because that's the only memory I had really. Um, so it said to George and Mabel on your golden wedding, um, celebrations or whatever. And I, we, we sort of, we didn't fall out over it, but I basically said, look, I don't want this on my wall, I'm not comfortable with having it on my wall, because we didn't know these people, it's their personal possession, mm. and I don't want it on the wall, so, she basically went off in a bit of a half about this, and <laughs> tucked it away in a cupboard in the kitchen, now I didn't know, well, I actually, that's not true, to start off with, I knew where she put it, she put it on a shelf on the wall in the kitchen, behind some cookery books, and then a week or so later, I'd popped home from work to get a cup of coffee. She was out. I couldn't see the plate where she'd put it. And I panicked slightly because I thought, oh, she's she's put it on the wall. And I didn't want it on the wall. So I checked every wall in the house. No sign of it. So I finished my coffee, went back to work. Forgot about it. Then about a week later, I come home from work about 6 o'clock in the evening. Sorry if I'm rushing. No. <laughs> come home about 6 o'clock in the evening. And I come through the door, and she's a little bit upset, a little bit shook up, and she said, you're not going to believe what's happened. And what had happened, she'd had, I think it was three other ladies around. They were all young mums at the time, and they'd had all the babies and the toddlers around. They are having a coffee morning in the front room. And they'd all been in the kitchen, but they'd left the kitchen, closed the door because of the kids, because it was connected to the garage, and there was no door on the garage, and they were scared the kids were going to get out in the garage. So the door was definitely closed. And they were all drinking coffee, and the kids were playing in the front room. When there was a sudden smashing of crockery, of, a, of a something landing on the kitchen floor, which was, um, what do they call it, like stone, flagstones. Mm-hmm. And the, the mums rushed out to the door, opened the door to see what the noise was, there was crockery all over the kitchen floor. And it's sort of, I'm cutting this really short, but basically the cupboard door, now I didn't know this at the time, but she'd moved it to a cupboard door to the right of where it had been when I couldn't find it. And it was now, it had now been put in a cupboard on top of some other plates. So this is, we're talking about a 10 inch diameter, 12 inch, whatever it is, just like a dinner plate size. And she'd put it on the top shelf on top of some other plates. The cupboard door was open and the plate was no longer on the top of that pile because when they went to sweep it up, she said, can I see which plate it is? Because one of her friends had got to the dustpan and brush first, I think. And it was that plate which had been smashed. So somehow, and they, they claimed they hadn't been in that cupboard, so they hadn't actually opened the door. So somehow that plate had left that cupboard on the wall and ended up on the deck with nobody in the kitchen. Hmm. So, you know, 
as I said, there was no witnesses because the door was shut. But we did have activity in that house. We quite frequently felt that there was another presence in the house when we were there. And I did have, well, you mentioned UFOs earlier. I did have a very strange experience with a, with like a blue light, which is also in the book, in that same house, which was a bit like, if you remember the Mission Impossible TV series, where the blue light, like a fuse, it was a fuse, wasn't it? And it sort of fizzled along. I That's don't remember, what remember, I'll take your oh, word for it. Okay. Oh, right. right. This was in the 60s, I think. And uh, it was similar to that. So, so quite a few things did happen in that house. And we felt there was like a, a, a I mean, my wife experienced this stuff as well, although she's very, very uh, sceptical about even when it happens to herself. Um, and I, there, we feel there was some sort of male presence, which in a not very nice one, in that house. And th th there's quite a few reasons we, we think that, mm -hmm. uh, which are mostly in the book, I think. Um, so I, I did wonder whether, you know, I joked at the end of the story, telling, saying, well, was it this presence? Do, you know, was he a, um, what do they call it? When they, uh, uh, men hate women, as there's a word for it. It's completely gone out of my head now. Um, maybe he didn't like the women all being there you know and maybe he's around but i've noticed that the house has been up for sale so many times regularly since we left it yeah we are you know yeah. it regularly comes up so i think people don't like living there yeah. well just uh, just before we uh, run out of time here right i guess not too far from you perhaps 10 15 miles as i understand it uh, mark would be the village of boss castle Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, when I was there in 89, uh, I ran into a story of the Disappearing Inn, the Pie family. Disappearing Inn? Yes, and I wanted, I wanted to know if you knew it. We really don't have time to discuss no. it. but uh, Well, perhaps no. we'll, we'll talk about that off the air because 1933, yes, yeah. a couple went to an inn. Uh, was wonderful. They went back the next day, and the place had simply disappeared. It was, there was just a field. Ah, so one of those things. I, so right yeah, up uh, both uh, our alleys yeah. here. Yeah. Oh, so, definitely. I, I, yeah, I love those stories. Great, Mark. Thanks for a great conversation. Indeed. Wonderful stories. And again, folks, uh, Wyatt's Weird World. Check it out on Amazon. And Mark will be talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay. All right, folks. We have a lot of announcements to get through. So let's do that. Corn. Oh no, I just, that's not the announcements. Right. Uh, join us in Exeter, New Hampshire in just two weeks on Saturday and Sunday, September 3rd and 4th for the Exeter UFO Festival. This is a really fun annual event sponsored by the Exeter Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. And the whole town, merchants, restaurants, and everybody else gets into the act. Along with ourselves, speakers will include Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Stephen Mather-Lees, Peter Robbins and Ryan Mullahay. We will present a new, a new talk on more strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts. As our guest said, it's all connected, we think. And on Sunday, in our usual time slot, we'll do a live broadcast from Exeter Town Hall with all the event speakers and a live audience. If you can't make it to the event, listen in on September 4th, noon to 1 p.m. here on ON 1240 or the Simple Radio app by Streama if you are not in our listening area. Then on Thursday, September 15th, our good friend and frequent guest, William J. Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House and The Haunted House Diaries, based on two of uh, my-slash-our cases, will speak at the Torrington, Connecticut Library at 6.30 p.m. I'll be there along with Shane Searway, 
several others of our partners in crime, enjoying sitting in the audience and letting Bill do all the work for once. Uh, all are invited to that event. <laughs> On Friday and Saturday, October 7th, and uh, the 8th, Wheeler, we're back at the Greater New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, uh, Massachusetts. Along with ourselves, speakers will include Nick Redfern, Mark D'Antonio, Bill Hall, Ronnie LeBlanc, uh, Bill Penning, and Ray Hernandez as well. Then on Sunday, October 16th, join us at Roger Williams Park in Providence, Rhode Island for the Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis Charity Walk. And we'll broadcast live from the event at noon with investigator Shane Searway, author William J. Hall, and... Uh, who knows who else might turn up. So you can join us and the rest of Team Behind the Paranormal or just donate. See the link at BehindTheParanormal.com. And the walk is a two, two to three miles and begins at 10 a.m. And there will be more information here on ON 1240 as the date approaches. If you donate $15 or more via the team page, you can walk with us on the 16th. And you will get a free Behind the Paranormal ON 1240 Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis t-shirt to mark the occasion. And speaking of the Crohn's and Colitis T-shirt, if you happen to be watching on a computer or some device where you get the uh, the video feed from this uh, studio here, you can see we're wearing our shirts right now. And, uh, again, the Crohn's and Colitis walk, good cause, check it out. Uh, when you go to our main page, by the way, just scroll down a little bit uh, and you will see a big picture of us at a previous walk, and that will link you to the page in which you can sign up for our team to walk or to donate. Uh, on Tuesday, October 18th, I'll be, spe- I'll be the speaker at the monthly MUFON event at Mutual UFO Network, very, very good organization, uh, in the Philadelphia area. That'll be 6.30 p.m. at the Tredefin Public Library, Upper Gulf Road, Wayne, Pennsylvania. And you can find out about that, mainline at MUFON.com. Uh, meanwhile, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find nearly 700 free recorded shows from both he- ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. So our forthcoming book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now available for pre-order on the publisher's website, uh, shiverbooks.com. Just search for Behind the Paranormal or use the link on our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. In case you haven't heard it enough, it's also available for pre-order on Amazon.com. And the book is slated for release by Schiffer Books in January. And there will be a release party of some kind, probably here in our listening area. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let you know uh, about that as well. Well, people are going to hear a lot about it. Oh, yes. Yeah, as, it, as the time comes, okay? All right. Anyway, you can find my other books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Nook. And uh, we are about to release a revised and expanded edition of, Footst- of uh, Faces at the Window, originally published in 1998. And the only real gripe that reviewers had with the book was it was too short. Well, I am a professional editor, and I can't say things in three words, you know, the ten words that I can say in three. So uh, keep an eye out for that. So, uh, well, we got like a, a minute left here? Because I, I can't see Yeah, about point. a minute. Okay. All right. Uh, so anyway, uh, check those out, uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble. And uh, we also remind you of the charities we've adopted. That's uh, USA Cares. Org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, a lot of great charities. There are links on our website uh, to that. So next Sunday, Ben, oh, what we got? You're taking my things to say. Uh, August 28th, uh, we'll bring you an open line show to delve once again into an exponentially expanding abyss of emails. Uh, in what is becoming a very agreeable tradition, uh, we will be joined once again by our colleague and friend, Shane Searway. And we'll leave you this afternoon with a simple but powerful thought from 17th century Spanish philosopher Balthazar Gracian. To find one real friend is a lifetime 
in a lifetime is good fortune. To keep that friend is a blessing. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben 